jump up on the landing at the wool shed and like put on some kind of show while we were trying dad would be like hurry up sweep up and meanwhile we're like singing a song and twirling around and then the back of the ute when you know you know wherever we could find a stage that was you know we'd do it <laughs> Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of rural and regional women in Australia. Hi, I'm Sky Manson. I'm your host for this episode. This chick, Australian country music singer and songwriter Fanny Lumsden, is such a legend. The energy that she gives off, even via a computer screen, is pretty special. What she's got is unique. Fanny is a born-to-be entertainer who somehow maintains the authenticity of a girl who's grown up on a farm. She sees the true beauty of small communities in Australia, and yet she has eight Golden Guitar Awards sitting on her mantelpiece and is still so surprised at the ongoing success of her career. Part of her story is what happened in 2020. One thing was bushfire. Her home was in the middle of the Duns Road Fire, 600,000 hectares in size, a proper Armageddon. And then on the day that her third album was to be released, COVID lockdown in Australia hit. It was bad. We talk about all of this, but not before we wind back to a topic that is way more blissful, her childhood. I grew up on a farm um, between West Wyalong and Griffith, a little place kind of called Talimba with Valley area. And uh, yeah, it was a mixed farming, like mixed sheep and um, and cropping place. And I'm the eldest of four and I, I have a big, loud, uh, very musical family <laughs> with a lot of opinions. And it was lots of fun. And I, um, music had a huge part of my childhood. We, um, my mum, is, is and her whole family very classic and uh, classically based I suppose and we all did like you know Amy B piano grades and had to practice our scales and performed it at like a Stedfords and that kind of stuff and then um and then my dad's side of the family there's also a lot of that kind of further afield my dad didn't do that but he also loves music and um he's also a bush poet and so he writes poetry and he does um yeah, so there was there's kind of like from basically from opera singers to like concert pianists to musical theatre performers who perform all around the world, um, uh, to country music artists <laughs> in my family um, amongst farmers, nurses and teachers. Oh, my goodness. So you definitely know where the talent came from. It seems to me like it's, is that unusual? Like were you surrounded by other families and peers in like around Weath Alley that had similar musical interests and where did you get all your lessons from and did they you know could they cater to your level of skill at the local school? Uh, yeah I was actually really lucky um there were like lots of families like you know like learned the piano or the violin or did like speech and drama and widow I think it was valued quite highly which is um I think unique um, to that area or oh, lots of areas maybe but um I was very yeah very grateful and actually because of my mom she's a school teacher and she's a principal now but she ran the music program at school so <laughs> I see. Yeah. Um, yeah there was 
we there was, we were really into choirs. There was lots of choirs happening, and um, and we'd travel into West Wylong to have our piano lesson. Really lucky to have um, shout out to Lucy Buttonshaw, who was my first piano teacher there. Uh-huh. And um, and yeah, so we were kind of lucky. There was there was quite a bit around um, that area, and it was valued quite well. Uh, sounds like a, a little bit of a hotspot, the Wee Valley music hotspot. Thanks to your mum, probably <laughs> in large part. <laughs> All your family totally. are also farmers, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, they are. So um, basically, what do we just All branches. I keep calling it forks and it's just definitely not forks. Um, all branches of the family um, <laughs> are from the land kind of in all directions going back. Um, so like, you know, my mum's mum and my mum's dad and my dad's dad and my dad's mum, everybody grew up on on farms around us, different parts around Australia and um, going back generations. So, yes, we do say that I'm from a long line of um Farming families and show ponies. <laughs> oh, I love that. Do you love the title of a show pony? Ah, oh, totally. I'd be silly not to like embrace that. It's true. I've been, you know, you know, on the back of the we'd jump up on the landing at the wool shed and like put on some kind of show while we were trying dad'd be like, hurry up, sweep up. And meanwhile, we're like singing a song and twirling around and then the back of the ute would, you know, you know, wherever we could find a stage, that was, you know, we'd do it. <laughs> How good didn't need any nor audience, just a stage. And wide open spaces. Just a stage, yeah. I actually have this, uh, like, all these memories of we would also put on, like, circuses on our horses and this memory of making my parents, there's a photo of it actually, and and my grandparents all sit outside and watch my sister and I wearing my cousin's, like, hand-me-down dance costumes, which are, like, spandex, which we thought were just, like, the bee's knees. And we're doing this, like, big performance on our horses and we made them all pay and sit out there and it was, like, 43 degrees. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've been, like, begging an audience for a long time, I think. <laughs> what were your Christmases like? Lots of people. I've got a lot of cousins and very loud and lots of music and running around and um, we would all perform. So it'd be like it'd get to the point of the afternoon where it would usually be my auntie who would like kick it off with her kids <laughs> um, and everyone would get up and do a performance. And usually my cousins and I will have like gone out the back and, you know, made up a dance to, I don't know, Michael Jackson or Hanson or something like that. Um, And then we'd come out and perform, you know, (laughs) Spice Girls. Um, So, yeah, it was, it was, it was really fun. And then we'd all like kind of end up jamming and which, you know, and sing lots of harmonies, lots of singing and, um, makes it sound idyllic I'm sure there was I'm sure there was uh you know angst amongst the adults at some point but it mostly was really fun when you left school did you what did you want to be um well I'd done all this formal training with music my whole kind of life but I also had this other thread of um you know I did ag at school and was part of the show team and and um I went away down to Aubrey to school and I, I didn't really know. I think I I, really, I was done for, with music for a little bit there. I was just a bit like, ah, uh, kind of the structure of classical training and all of that kind of, I just doesn't really suit me. And um, and so, yeah, I, I went overseas for a year and, um, and travelled and did, um, I worked at an outdoor camp in Canada on an island and did, you know, just did the gap thing and um, backpacked around the world on my own without a phone. 
<laughs> Sorry, parents. Um, That's a foreign, like, how, who um, could imagine that, that? But that actually happened all of us. I know. In the past. That, that, that used to happen, right? Um, and so, yeah, I did that. But then I came back and I went to Armidale to UNE and studied rural science. I think during that course, um, the factual nature of doing a science degree, and there's literally no room for your opinion <laughs> or um, kind of colour or anything like that. You, you're just regurgitating facts and then like studying different facts. And I think that side of science really like pushed out my creativity in my own time. So I would then just like go back to my room um, after class and just I started songwriting and um all of a sudden I was like late for class and skipping class and not going to prax and like this songwriting world kind of took over me. Um, I wasn't doing anything. Like I hadn't even played a show yet. Like it was, I was just like really enamored with songwriting. I thought it was amazing. And just this really kind of creative world that had no bounds. Like you got to make it up yourself and that suited my personality onto the ground. Like I was like, Oh wow. Like that kind of started to blow my mind a lot. And then, yeah. So then I moved after I finished my degree, I, um, I moved to Sydney, um, kind of with the hopes of like, Oh, like maybe I'll become a personal trainer, super into fitness then, then well, um, and I'll uh, I'll play at some songwriter nights and I'll just have a go at living in the city because I'd never really lived in the city. I'd never visited. So moved to Sydney and um, just started giving that a crack. Never did the personal training thing because I started doing music and that cost a lot of money and I didn't have any because I was living in a share house and, you know. Um, yeah, so I kind of just started and it just gradually, gradually snuck up on me, I think. Basically, I've just, I'm like this in tense optimist <laughs> um that's probably irritating for a lot of people but I just I'm constantly like I don't know I was just really excited by these opportunities and maybe they weren't amazing if I'd had any idea or understanding of the greater scope of the music industry but each thing felt like a win so I was like oh wow I get to play on this stage and sing these people my songs and it's probably terrible but I was like this is so fun and then yeah I met a band along the way um and you know, actually including my husband who I had to convince to play for me because my brother was playing bass for me and he was in high school. And so I was like, oh, no, I need, I need to get a bass player. And then he said, Dan said, no, he's my husband now because um, he was too busy apparently but um, or not into the music, <laughs> um, which is a funny joke now because, yes, he's uh, now spends his life traipsing around regional Together. Australia playing yeah. country music, yeah. I do want to talk more about that, but there's some things that I want to ask you about. So in your uni room, when you started your mm-hmm. songwriting, uh, what were you writing about? And just tell me, for someone that has no idea, how do you write a song? <laughs> um, I was writing about like utter nonsense, which I found <laughs> incredibly freeing. Like I'm not even kidding, like complete, like just I don't even can't even explain what it was. It was like I found so much freedom in writing about absolute bullshit. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, what? Like I think, well, one song though I can remember is called the Cat Song, and um, I wrote that song after my grandma when I was twenty two asked me when I was going to get married and told me I just told her I'd have a lot of cats instead but I don't really even like cats so I was like that's a lie so I wrote a song about that you know nothing to like save the world um 
I didn't have any kind of, I don't know, intentions. I, I do know what happened. I started accessing kind of like that stream of consciousness, which has been like um, really important in songwriting. And it's like that kind of getting to that place of flow. Maybe for writers, they might find the same kind of thing. It's like just this pure focus point where you um, kind of, forget it's like almost feels like a dream state and you kind of can just go anywhere with it and um kind of turning off your conscious brain is quite hard so I started kind of just tapping into that and it was really fun it was kind of like play um and I don't know for writing a song writing a song comes in so many different ways um now I write them still try to access that same thing like I'll just still try and just like I pick up a guitar and I just like see what comes out of my mouth and a lot of my songs have been written that way and I realize what they're about after um because obviously something's just like you know it's just been like milling around in your brain for a while and um all of a sudden it comes out it kind of comes out in a certain way and you're like oh there you go (laughs) so um, and then you kind of craft it after. I do anyway. So, or other times, you know, you might write like a whole heap of stuff down on, on like on the, like in a piece, on a piece of paper or whatever. I really like handwriting my lyrics out. And, um, and then if I'm just mucking around the guitar, I don't know, it feels like it sounds so wanky, but it feels like songs sometimes are coming past on the breeze. And if you don't grab them in that moment, you kind of miss them. Um, they're kind of like this moment in time or this bit of little bit of light or something. And it sounds so weird and airy fairy to explain them back that, but I can't really explain it any other way because it's, some of them are just like a feeling. And then you're like, Oh, that is right. That's how that's meant to sound. So not a clear. I love you. that. I love that. What you're <laughs> saying, just catch them on the breeze. How beautiful. When do you feel that your career as an artist really propelled? Uh, it's been really gradual. Um, it feels like to me, but there are points I think that it had like a little spurt. <laughs> um, and I realized that we were capable of doing more than I had um, kind of anticipated. I've always had this, I have never had like this big end goal. Like back then I was never like, I'm going to win an aria. <laughs> I was back then I was like, um, let's do that gig next weekend. <laughs> and let's, um, let's get, uh, imagine if we could record our songs and get it played on the radio. Like, you know, every goal has kind of been like, it's like I've just kind of crept the goalpost a little bit further every time when I've realized that, um, oh my God, that's, we can do that. And so it's kind of pushed along, but, um, I think when we released our album, um, which we crowdfunded, Dan and I like did the whole crowdfunding campaign ourselves in 2015, we released our debut, Small Town Big Shot. And we'd never been, like we'd been to Tamworth, but we hadn't really been like in the country scene as such. And, you know, we didn't come up the usual kind of track of the country scene, which is, you know, doing your busking and doing the competitions and stuff. We hadn't, we didn't do any of that. Um, And we released it and the album debuted at number four on the country aria charts. And we were like, oh, whoa, (laughs) wow. And we got all these amazing reviews and it was just, it was a bit of a shock, I think, because we'd just been so busy in our little bubble just doing our own thing and didn't think the industry had any interest in what we were doing. And then all of a sudden it kind of got propelled and then we went and travelled around Australia, Dan and I, and we were just getting all this media interest as we were driving around in our tiny caravan, like doing gigs in people's backyards or wherever on the back of a truck or wherever we were in Queensland, Northern Territory. Um, but we're getting, yeah, this kind of major, like, media interest and I was like I don't really know what this is about but we kind of just you know rolled with it and then came back from that trip and did our country halls tour which was in its fourth year I think then 
Um, and then went to Tamworth and we won the Golden Guitar for Best New Artist or Best New Act or whatever the official term is. Um, and so that really kind of pushed things along. And then we also won the Best New Artist at the CMC Awards kind of a few weeks later. So we were like, oh, okay then. <laughs> so I think that point was really where it kind of like pushed up a notch. Oh, my goodness. I love the story. It's amazing. Like you're very humble and... <laughs> Um, yeah, unknowing of like your raw talent, obviously. Can you tell me about the Country Halls tour? Is that something that you created? Yeah, yeah, it is. What what was the impetus for that? So in 2012, I was living in the city. It was around the time I just first started playing. I convinced Dan to join the band amongst some other city slickers, um, beautiful band members who were my first band and definitely my teachers in terms of the music industry because I'm just going to add in there, like I can't, I can't stress enough how little I knew about the music industry when I started. Like I didn't even know how to plug my guitar in on the stage. Like I remember I didn't know what a DI was. I didn't know how you booked a gig. I didn't know anything, anything at all. And I've really learned on the job. Um, um, so, yeah, so the uh, Country Horse Tour started, um, I just, I don't know, I grew up, you know, like I said, in a small town and we always performed down at the hall Um it was our Christmas concert, your end of the school year concert. You'd perform at the CWA things, you know, at the PWA flower show or whatever was going on down at the at the hall. We would um, and so that had always been that stage. And I just, I just thought it could be magical to put on shows in halls. And also, I really wanted to do it because growing up out there, I really rarely got to see live music, and I knew how much it cost and how much effort you had to put in. You had to like fly or drive to the city you had to pay for accommodation you had to and so you'd only ever go see like some big like some big band um and so I was like I think this should be accessible to country people and it shouldn't they shouldn't have to like spend all of this money to access live original music like it there's all these people that would definitely come out the audiences are here we've just got to go to them and so I think it kind of I'd never planned it to go on and on and on and on and on. I thought we were just going to do one weekend and maybe another time we'd do another weekend of it. So we went out and did three shows, Salimba Hall, Ganmain Hall and Borrie Creek Hall in the Riverina where I grew up. And um, they were free. I'd never put on events before. I just did what made sense. I was like, um, great, we've got the band. Our friend came along and did sound. Another friend lent us a fan. Um, my mum realised that I hadn't organised accommodation in a lot of places, so she's, like, calling up motels and she's like, they're doing a fundraising thing for Blazade. <laughs> and um, they're like, oh, they can stay here for free. And so they got us these sponsors so I could kind of, and, you know, everyone just kind of chipped in and then people turned up. And I was like, yeah, I think I think this could be amazing. And so, and also that weekend everybody came out and, like, um, we're like, oh, you got to come and see the blah, blah, blah hall. Like, have you seen the hall down the road? Or you tr- come and see our hall. Our hall's better than this hall. And I was like, oh, I think there's a few halls out there <laughs> that we could do this. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we did the next year. We did three more. And um, now we are eight years, nine years later and about to do our eighth country hall. We've done 150 halls all over Australia and we have 84 halls that have applied for this year. So, yes, it's really turned into its own thing. How amazing. So. Do country halls put an application into you now and you decide where you want to go? Yeah, that's how it works. Um, 
So we had halls that were applying all the time, like reaching out a lot. And I was like, I need to put some structure around this. I have a fairly haywire brain. So I was like, I need some structure. Um, So we put applications open and then it makes it really interesting. I love that process because it takes us to places I would never, I haven't even heard of. Like little halls, the middle of paddocks out in the middle of nowhere. Never heard of the Martha Guy Hall and you know, it was, they're all sold out now. They're like this big night. We call them our, um, our, how do I say this? All in community night out. <laughs> um, so we just really like have worked to make it accessible to all the community. Um, I never want to put the prices up or anything like that. I want to make sure that every person gets the chance to come and, um, and share live music and the magic that you can um, feel when you all come together in a space like that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been intertwined with lots of different, you know, like drought and floods and every kind of thing that people go through. And I think having that um, opportunity to share those moments with people um, and just bring a bit of joy, like just the kids are tearing around the outside yeah. of the hall and like adults are catching up. And I like my favorite thing is just to stand back from the hall um, just as it's getting dark and there's like lights and music coming out. And like, yeah, like I said, the kids are tearing around and there's like about, you know, 150 like white Toyotas. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's really special and, um, and something that I think we'll always do uh, in some kind of capacity. They are, we can't do it as much as we used to. We got to the point where we're doing like 45 halls and that's like, and you're doing two a weekend, like that's a lot of your year. So yeah, um, yeah we, we are kind of altering it a little bit, but um, I will never, I'll never not do it. I don't think, I hope. What kind of energy does it give you? Ah, uh, it's, it's amazing. It, I'm like, I'm excited just right now because this afternoon I'm like scheduling this year and it's so fun to like, I don't know, that kind of energy that you get when you drive up to a hall, right? And you when you were a kid and you could see the lights and you could see what was happening. I get that same buzz now. Like it feels the same. We like run along and slide along the like things with me on your knees, like down the hall. Um, yeah. I think it, people will keep always saying like at the end of shows, like, Oh, I don't know how you do it. Like blah, blah, blah. I was like, cause you guys give me energy to do it. Like the fact that we get to do this and pull it off somehow is um, amazing to me. We'll be back in just a moment, but now a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand recently celebrated its 150th anniversary. An incredible landmark for the brand, Blundstone has a long history of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family-owned and Tasmanian-based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For over 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone. Tested by every generation since 1870. 
Fanny, you live in Tumanau. Um, and is it Narigo country? Is that how I pronounce it? It is. Yes, on Narigo country. Narigo. And that's where you're speaking to me now. Home looks so lovely. Um, firstly, how did you how did you end up there? Because that's not Weath Alley where you grew up. <laughs> yeah, no, it is not. Um, I ended up here because uh, well, my parents moved back here in think early oh, maybe about seven eight years ago um my dad grew up in northeast victoria in the mountains um they lived here for a little stint when i was young and the mountains have always been this really um kind of important part of my upbringing and my family especially for my dad and um it was kind of their goal always to move back when they could after they'd got to a certain point and and so yeah they moved back here and dan and i um left sydney in 20. 20- 15 and um because we were going to drive our we were just planning on leaving and um, going around australia in our little millard 1978 pop top millard 14 <laughs> foot long um <laughs> she's pretty fancy her name's yeah. little millie um yeah. and we had no real plans we just were like all oh, money but we were like let's just go and so we had some festivals booked at the start so we did them and then we kind of just like did house concerts and did call outs and turned up anywhere so after we'd done that we like moved our stuff to the city I mean from the city to my parents place and we were like when we got back from that trip we were like this place is pretty nice (laughs) let's stay here and um we actually got married as soon as we got back and on the farm mum and dad's place and then a cottage kind of came up or like you know just down the road from them and they're rare as hen's teeth good farmhouses so (laughs) we like Actually, we were on tour. We were in Queensland um, at the Woodford Folk Festival and mum said, um, we went and had a look at that house for you. She's pretty old, but I think it'll be fine. <laughs> I was like, quick then, like get the application. We'll fill it out. And <laughs> we hadn't even seen it. But, um, yeah, we just stayed here and we've moved again since then. But um, we live in this beautiful, beautiful valley and I, uh, the community is amazing and, you know, my family are nearby and it's just stunning landscape. And for me, I that gives me a lot of energy, the views and the, um, I don't know, this beautiful, like, kind of surroundings every day. I can come home here after tour and just, like, be like, ah, this is really inspiring and, yeah, love it. That's what home should be, hey? Definitely. Tell me more about, like, paint me a picture. What does it actually look like? So it's big kind of open, like, rolling valleys, um, kind of, like, just, like, right up against the main range so the national park Kosciuszko national park and the main range are just like not that far away from here on the tumor valley they're really close to where my mum and dad are but the valleys are like quite like open here and it's farming country um, man from snowy river country and uh just like kind of i don't know, it feels really out of like it's majestic it's you know it's insane like these it's kind of like it's really green most of the year, except for right now. Um, but that happens every year, obviously, it haze off. Um, and I can see Mount Kosciuszko and the snow um, kind of out our kitchen window um, mm. during the winter time. But we're right down tucked in the valley where it all gets kind of foggy. And um, yeah, it's just it's just beautiful. The light's insane every day, and it you know is different every day. And uh, I just feel really lucky to be here. Um, so that's what it looks like now and generally, but it didn't look like that last summer. Tell me what it looked like. No, it got burnt very badly. Um, yeah, we, 
So right where we live here is where the um, mega fire joined. Um, that became that big 600,000 hectare fire. Um, so Dunn's Road fire between Green Valley and Orney fire all joined just over the hill from the house here, actually. And we had three weeks of major fire fronts coming through um, and no power for 26 days. And uh, we're pretty cut off, actually, from the outside world. And, yeah, it was a really intense um, time um, but where the community really kind of rallied and helped each other and because we kind of had to because they um, evacuated a lot of the emergency crews out of here, out of these valleys for some of those big, big burn days. And so it was kind of important. Everyone kind of had to have each other's back. And, yeah, we got through it. Luckily, very luckily, um, for some reason, the pocket around our house didn't burn. <laughs> I don't, don't know why, just didn't. And so, but a lot of other places around here did. And those days are so long, aren't they? It's almost like you can't allow yourself to go to bed. You just have to keep going no. until it's over. Yeah. And it was like, I've never felt that amount of stress. I don't think in my body, like it was really full on and like something that you had to like, like notice after. And, you know, we were straight back on the road. Like we lived straight after, um, but after, and I had to really kind of reconcile with that. But yeah, those days are really, um, because you know that it's not till late afternoon that the flare-ups will happen um and like having that same thing go every day <laughs> um and then not having phone service or any kind of communication either we didn't have any of that so I would one of us would drive up usually me would go up and top of the hills to try and get some service and I would then like get all of the different kind of apps and different things responses in and then I'd do it. I was like also posting a lot of my social media um, to like other families that or family members from the region that couldn't be in here that needed updates. So my Facebook became a bit of a communication channel to to that as well. Um, mm. But yeah, it was it was um it was a really really intense time. But yeah, like I said, you just kind of we all kind of kept quite busy and everybody like because we had horses down on like fallows, ones we couldn't get out were down on like big fallow paddocks down near the river and. Um, so just like feeding, feeding out stock and um, trying to just keep that. But yeah, we had different people on watch every night and that kind of stuff as well. How did it feel on that night? When, when was it after new year, when the fire really did come through for the last time? Yeah, the first, there was uh, the last, so the first time it came through was probably the most, well, actually they were all equally terrifying, but um, yeah, the first one when we, when I still had my son in here and he was two, like that was pretty terrifying. We watched, and that was the, like the night it burnt out Kajua and Koryong and a lot of friends were like, you know, like trying to flee and just, yeah, it was a really huge night that night. Um, and then the next morning was when it burnt through Dunn's Road just above where we live. Um, that night was um, kind of, I realized how unprepared we were, even though we had a plan and we had all of our stuff, like we had the car packed and we had, you know, sprinklers and we had done, but I just realized, I was like, where are the batteries for our radios? Like all these little things that you hadn't, I hadn't like actually activated. And I was like, the UHF is not even like connected in the car properly. And I was like, all these things that I was like, oh my God. And I was like, I didn't sleep. I was just like running around the house all night. Cause I was watching the flyer just go down. Um, so yeah, that was crazy. By the time the last one came through, we were all, um, that was like three weeks later and that was like three weeks on the front of the fire. So it was a very different kind of stress by the time we got to that point because it was very unknown at the start. But the second one was um, by the third third round of like big, that was kind of, um, I put some footage on my social media actually. There's um, 
of it burning through the pine forest behind us that's like the flames are like hundreds of meters high it was like just insane and it firestorms through there um that was a very different kind of feeling I think um we were a bit more prepared and we had yeah there was you could get onto burnt ground then too Mm. so it it Mm. felt a little less terrifying right I remember seeing that footage and I remember so closely following the Duns Road fire because we knew people and um and listening on to like fire radios on I can't even remember what the name of the app was but some some app that we're oh, supposed yeah, to I've listen got it to as well <laughs> yeah yeah I've got them as well the scan the radio scanners <laughs> yeah 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 and it was you know we were up until all hours of the night trying to place what was happening and um and it felt like I'm not sure if it felt like for you on that last time it was like Armageddon arriving and here it is and not quite sure how how bad it was going to be but maybe said felt a sense of relief too I think once the first burn had gone through actually after the second burn had gone through the second burn burnt the valley that I live in um so like the whole area obviously had been burning but the second burn burnt this valley and I actually wasn't here in that on that night and um that was a really like we were listening in obviously on all the scanners and all the radios and had all the different things going and had different people around the room listening to different things and we we're all reporting being like it's across this road now it's this there it's going this direction and the um the radio the, the fire captain is my um is actually owns the property we live on owns this house and um they're good friends of ours and we could hear him asking for support and being denied like again and again and again they're asking for air support we never had airplanes we never had like anything in here because there just wasn't enough because of the whole bloody state was burning so mm. um but we could just hear that and so I remember that night being really like really intense and driving in we drove in then at like to where our valley here at like 5 a.m the next morning just rode drove straight through they hadn't even set up blocks yet because like roadblocks because they just hadn't had time and so we didn't know what we're driving into that drive was pretty harrowing because we were like just driving into the smoke I was like I don't know if we're going to drive into like a fire front but we just like crept along in a couple of vehicles we had firefighters on um so we're kind of okay but um, and then driving down through the smoke and not knowing if my house was going to be here or not. <laughs> just, um, but yeah, it was wild. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. Um, can, it's just, can you believe that you're even talking about the fact that three fire fronts came through and like the whole valley was burnt and it just is so unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It was, it was a big, it was really intense too. We left, um, kind of you know like once the major threat of fire front coming through um kind of subsided we actually had to go to Tamworth we didn't have to go but we were we were keen to get up to Tamworth for lots of reasons our album was coming out a few months later and we had a lot of campaigning to do so and we'd built a mini cinema in a horse float um to show off a cinematic version of our album um and we'd actually gone out and and filmed a bunch of footage around here straight after the fires so that we could you know, that the album is so much to do with this valley. Our album fellow um, was so inspired by the valley and then I recorded it here in a stone hut that I felt like we had to kind of include that narrative in the, like, in the story of the album. Um, but, it, you know, we, I worked very hard to kind of work out how to do that without exploiting people's trauma and, um, you know, making it all about me or something like that. Like, I, but I just, yeah, we, I knew we needed to tell the story like that and, um, so we went out and shot all of that and then put it together in a, in a film and then 
made a horse, like went and bought a horse float. Literally, we were meant to have three weeks to do this and we had three days. Oh. So hats off to my husband, Dan, who did this. And um, yeah. and then, yeah. And then, so as we were driving out with this horse float that we'd just made into a cinema towards Tamworth, my brother, my um, our toddler and um, Dan and I, um, we're literally driving out and like it's still burning either side of the road. There's like logs burning and trees burning and we're just driving out of the valley like, okay, well, this is a strange feeling, isn't it? Off we go to Tamworth yeah. and things are burning still. And then we drove through this massive, massive dust storm. One went through like kind of that Dubbo area last year and it was started last year and it was absolutely enormous. And I, I've been through a lot of dust storms in my life and this one was just like wild. And we were just like pulled up and it was like pushing the car and the horse went oh. across the road and we couldn't see anything and there was lightning everywhere. And I was just like, oh, my God, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. When's this going to end? Um, I really want to talk more about Fellow. So why did you record it at home in the Stone Heart? Um, I just like the idea of capturing the magic from the valley directly. I spend a lot of time in the studio trying to explain how it feels when the sun like comes over in the morning and hits the hill and like, you know, like this fog coming up the valley and what it smells like. And I'm explaining all that to my producer being like, I want it to sound like this moment. And I wanted to, and I just was like, well, let's just put him in the moment. And then I can be like, I want it to sound like that. Look out the window. <laughs> and he's like, got it. And um, he's an intensely creative guy. Um, his name's Matt Fell. And he, we've worked on previous albums together and I just knew how inspired he got from being in different locations and also out of the studio where you don't have all of the buttons you usually push, right? So you usually, you can kind of fall into some kind of pattern if you have the same tools and the same toys just sitting there lined up. And I was like, if we go somewhere where we don't have any of that, we have to make it up and we have to like just go with the flow so we you know we used a horse float to record guitar amps we used like the old turnover tank which is a bathroom now um we use that as an echo chamber we like yeah it just really it kind of took on a life of its own and it really it was quite an intense period because I also lost my grandma who I is was like my favorite person and um has been an inspiration for for me forever lost her during that period and then we lost a friend um a very close friend of Matt's and a friend to the industry and a colleague um to suicide during that process as well and so it was it was very very intense um but the album was all about finding hope and finding joy in moments of chaos and pain I suppose um so um it kind of all fed into it and then yeah here we are we're in the we're in the pre pre-release phase at Tamworth, and then it came out on the thirteenth of March, which was the day that everything got cancelled in the music industry. Oh, <laughs> for the that's year. Right. We essentially lost our jobs. <laughs> but yeah. it was so successful; it was released to such like huge critical acclaim. And did you did you win? I'm sorry, I'm not clear on the timelines. But at Tamworth that year, had you won awards for each at that stage? Not for it. No, we won an award that year for um, a, a video clip for our song Real Men Don't Cry, War and Pride, um, and that was from our previous record. So we won a golden guitar that year, but it was for the record before. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so then we hadn't run, won anything, no, not for it kind of comes after the record comes out. And, yeah, so it came out, everything was cancelled, all of our press was cancelled, all of our tours were cancelled, everything was cancelled. And I can't stress, like, what a blow that is. <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's kind of huge. 
we did get to fit in our launch though, which we did um, here down here at the Tuma Valley um, at the Rec Reserve. And we did as a fundraiser for our Tuma Muruggle Bushfire Recovery Fund. And that was a sensation. <laughs> How do you explain your community and the way you felt about everyone? They're pretty rock solid, <laughs> I think. Um, with really wobbly bits, we're all wobbly. <laughs> we're mm. all like, you know, teetering on the edge, I think. And especially after that, like this year, everyone's, but I think collectively coming together, especially in like with music and with like the intention of, um, of kind of making sure each other is okay. Um, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was a I don't even know. I don't even know if I have the words for that. Um, <laughs> strangely, yeah. I have a lot of yeah. words. But. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fanny Lumsden, lost for words. Said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> Said no one ever. Uh, no uh, one ever. But I, yeah, that's why I asked that question because I can imagine it's so difficult to to put into words. Tell me about this I. Uh, big events like that have such an element of post-traumatic stress disorder and personally but then also you've got a collective element of that too when it's everyone that you've ever known in a small community can you talk to both of those things like personally and collectively yeah 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 I think, um, you know, it is, it is good to focus in on your own personal trauma and acknowledge that it is, exists um, because I think if you combine the two, the collective and the personal, I think what we all do when we're in the collective is that we transfer it to other people and go, oh, no, they had it worse than me. I'm fine. I'm fine. They had it worse. Like they lost their house or they've lost all of their sheep or like all the cattle or whatever else. And so you always transfer it to somebody else and you feel like you're not valid of that trauma. Um, like it's just not it's not a, like you should be fine like you can cope and um, I think then zeroing back on yourself and being like it's okay like you can cope but also acknowledge that that was a piece of shit and you are going to be feeling the fallout of that for a while um, and acknowledging that and, and that it's okay to feel that and feel angry or feel like whatever it is you feel like that's all right just just feel the feelings at that time and, and notice that but yet at the same time on the flip side, supporting each other through that um, collectively um, so that individuals can go through it. Um, it's, you know, the events are still happening and it was a really interesting process, I think, watching the external world um, respond to what you were going through internally mm-hmm. um, and what you didn't care about and what, like, other people were, like, making so much noise about and what you just were, like, I just we just need to get some fuel for the generator. Can you just, like... I don't want to, I don't want to talk about that right now. Like, can you just like, can we just keep going? Yeah. Um, so in the moment, like it was really, it's usually interesting to unpack that. I think after and um, acknowledged how um, insular your life gets during it, but then zoom out as the time allows and, and um, uh, allow yourself to go through the process and then heal through that. Yeah. 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 I love it. So, uh, Fallow, your album has, like, just got a swag load of awards. It's probably better that you <laughs> tell me what they are because I know that I'll get the <laughs> timelines wrong and things like that. But also, how good did that feel? Oh, my God. <laughs> after all of that, like, after that whole process and, like, the amount of energy, time, blood, sweat, tears you put, like, we put into putting an album out, Um 
and these songs and bringing these worlds to life and to sharing them and then having the share channels <laughs> cut off and mm. then just like running around and like it was like you know it's like a duck your legs are just going crazy under the water um to then get to the end of the year and um first just have it nominated for aria um was amazing um but then to win it was just like so it won yeah the aria for country album of the year um which was like i yeah i still don't think i've got my head around it like it was we had to zoom in from home and we had a party here because we were like if we win or lose, we feel like we've won. Like it doesn't matter. So we had friends and family and we had a red carpet out here on the farm and um, it was really fun. And But we zoomed in and, um, yeah, the footage is pretty funny of us when we when we found out. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty shocked. You know, this just, I don't know, these people that I've looked up to for a long time, these other big artists that just look so shiny and well put together <laughs> and I feel like this like just chaotic like whirlwind and just, you know got to brush my teeth and falling <laughs> over and you know I just so yeah that was amazing and then um just before that actually I think it was before that the week before we won that it got um nominated for seven golden guitars <laughs> which is the most nominated um for the whole thing which was again something I've watched the guitar golden guitar since I was a little kid like it was that just being nominated for that many was just insane and then in January it won five of the seven <laughs> um which was again it's all it's all a bit much really but um I'm very grateful and uh yeah I think it's I like I take it really seriously like I don't I'm not flippant and too cool for these awards like it just means that your industry and your peers think you did good work this year and like that's amazing and like their achievements that I actually didn't ever have on my mood board or whatever I just did kept doing little things so yeah and then actually just yesterday um, it, we had the AMP Awards, which is the Australian Music Prize. Um, and that this award is based um, completely on artistic merit and creativity of the record, um, not on the campaign or how well it's done commercially. So, and it's judged, yeah, purely on the, on the music. And, um, and it reached the t- final nine for the top nine albums, um, all genres, so wow unbelievable (laughs) yeah um I yeah and I think it's the only country one that's been in there for many many years I'm not sure of many other country ones that have been in them so yeah Yeah. but when you look at it it does deserve that because of the way that it was produced (laughs) yeah I like it's hard to I suppose when you're in it it's hard to get your head around it um but I'm yeah, like we have put in a lot of work this year, like huge amounts of work. And um I obviously wouldn't be out here doing this without my team of people behind me helping me scurry around every day. And um but yeah, it's there there it's weird to look up on my shelf right here actually and just uh-huh. I have we have eight now, eight golden guitars and a and a Aria award up there and I'm like, Oh my god, how did that happen? You legend. You legend, it's so good. So what a little happens? bit up myself now. <laughs> Oh, thanks so much. I um, feel really lucky to, I feel lucky with anybody that I interview, but it's been so, so gorgeous. And you can see, I can feel the energy that you give off. And um, I'm just so happy that you've had such a successful year after such a really challenging and deep um, and and deep year, you know, across 2020 and 2021. So thanks, Fanny. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and letting me ramble on.
How fun is she? I had a little bit of a snuffly nose the day we recorded this and the way that she told her stories of life on the land seriously brightened up my day. She is a serious treasure to behold. If you want to get amongst her sparkle, then you might be able to at the 2021 Country Halls Tour. Tickets will be going on sale before Easter, so you can check it out at fannylumsden.net. And while you're online, you can check out our site, crazyher.com.au. I received my autumn edition of the magazine last week and it is an absolute cracker. Please look out for it wherever you buy your magazines and in Coles stores. Thank you to Blundstone Australia, our sponsor for this series, and to you. Always listening and liking and sharing. We'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story.